Hey, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra. Thank you for listening. If this is your first episode, welcome. I'm happy to have you here regardless of your race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. The Weird Tales Podcast believes that trans rights are human rights, that abortion is health care, and that black lives matter, and we stand in solidarity with you all. Transcripts of the show, as well as links to institutions fighting for reproductive justice, can all be found in the show notes. A couple or three quick things up at the top. Thing the first. The October Project Season 5 has started. This year, we're doing a full reading of Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. It'll be going out every day at noon, except for Mondays, because those are the regular show days. So it'll be back tomorrow. Thing the second. Over on the Patreon, I wrapped up the Moonstone and started on the news story just a couple of days ago. For the next year or so, it will be The Island of Dr. Moreau by H.G. Wells. I've never read it before, so this is all new and exciting for me. Because the book itself and the chapters in particular are far shorter than the Moonstone, I've added a $5 tier to the Patreon. This tier gives you all the same bonus content as the $10 tier, but at half the price. So if you've wanted the bonus readings but didn't want to shell out 10 bucks a month, now you can get access to everything. The entire reading of the Moonstone and the future readings of The Island of Dr. Moreau. If you are subscribed at the $3 or $1 level, you can bump up to $5 and get the content, and conversely, if you're subscribed at the $10 level, you can bump down to $5 and still keep everything, including five extra dollars a month. Regardless of where you choose to subscribe, please know that I am grateful that you care enough about the show to help support it. Thing the third. If you're a new or up-and-coming writer of weird fiction and would like to see your story featured on the show, like Chris Halliday's last week, I'd love to hear from you. You can DM me on Twitter, at WeirdTalesPod, or send me an email, theweirdtalespodcast at gmail.com, and we'll talk about it. Thanks. All right, enough blather. On to the story. The Karnacki Chronicles, Volume 5, The Searcher of the End House. It was still evening, as I remember, and the four of us, Jessup, Arkwright, Taylor, and I, looked disappointedly at Karnacki, where he sat silent in his great chair. We had come in response to the usual card of invitation, which, as you know, we have come to consider as a sure prelude to a good story. And now, after telling us the short incident of the three straw platters, he had lapsed into a contented silence, and the night not half gone, as I have hinted. However, as it chanced, some pitying fate jogged Karnaki's elbow, or his memory, and he began again in his queer level way. The straw platters business reminds me of the searcher case, which I've sometimes thought might interest you. It was some time ago, in fact a deuce of a long time ago that the thing happened, and my experience of what I might term curious things was very small at that time. I was living with my mother when it occurred in a small house just outside of Appledorn on the south coast. The house was the last of a row of detached cottage villas, each house standing in its own garden, and very dainty little places they were, very old, and most of them smothered in roses, and all with those quaint old leaded windows and doors of genuine oak. You, you must try to picture them for the sake of their complete niceness. Now, I must remind you at the beginning that my mother and I had lived in that little house for two years, and in the whole of that time, there had not been a single peculiar happening to worry us. And then, something happened. It was about two o'clock one morning as I was finishing some letters that I heard the door of my mother's bedroom open, and she came to the top of the stairs and knocked on the banisters. All right, dear, I called, for I suppose she was merely reminding me that I should have been in bed long ago. Then I heard her go back to her room, 
and I hurried my work for fear she should lie awake until she heard me safe up to my room. When I was finished, I lit my candle, put out the lamp, and went upstairs. As I came opposite the door of my mother's room, I saw that it was open, called goodnight to her very softly, and asked whether I should close the door. As there was no answer, I knew that she had dropped off to sleep again, and I closed the door very gently and turned into my room just across the passage. As I did so, I experienced a momentary, half-aware sense of a faint, peculiar, disagreeable odor in the passage, but it was not until the following night that I realized I had noticed a smell that offended me. You, you follow me? It, it is so often like that. One suddenly knows a thing that really recorded itself on one's consciousness perhaps a year before. The next morning at breakfast, I mentioned casually to my mother that she had dropped off and I had shut the door for her. To my surprise, she assured me that she had never been out of her room. I reminded her about the two raps she had given upon the banister, but she still was certain I must be mistaken. And in the end, I teased her, saying she had grown so accustomed to my bad habit of sitting up late that she had come to call me in her sleep. Now, of course, she denied this, and I let the matter drop, but I was more than a little puzzled and did not know whether to believe my own explanation or to take the motters, which was to put the noise down to the mice and the open door to the fact that she couldn't have properly latched it when she went to bed. I suppose, away in the subconscious part of me, I had a stirring of less reasonable thoughts, but certainly I had no real uneasiness at that time. The next night, there came a further development. About 2.30 a.m., I heard my mother's door open, just as on the previous night, and immediately afterwards, she rapped sharply on the banister, as it seemed to me. I stopped my work and called up that I would not be long. As she made no reply, and I did not hear her go back to bed, I had a quick sense of wonder whether she might not be doing it in her sleep after all, just as I had said. With the thought, I stood up and, taking the lamp from the table, began to go toward the door, which was open into the passage. It was then I got a sudden, nasty sort of thrill, for it came to me all at once that my mother never knocked. When I sat up too late, she always called. You will understand that I was not really frightened in any way, only vaguely uneasy and pretty sure she must really be doing the thing in her sleep. I went quickly up the stairs, and when I came to the top, my mother was not there, but her door was open. I had a bewildered sense, though, believing she must have gone quietly back to bed without my hearing her. I entered her room and found her sleeping quietly and naturally, for the vague sense of trouble in me was sufficiently strong to make me go over to look at her. When I was sure she was perfectly right in every way, I was still a little bothered, but much more inclined to think my suspicion correct and that she had gone quietly back to bed in her sleep without knowing what she had been doing. This was the most reasonable thing to think, as you must see. And then it came to me, suddenly, that vague, queer, mildewy smell in the room. And it was in that instant I became aware I had smelt the same strange, uncertain smell the night before in the passage. I was definitely uneasy now and began to search my mother's room, though with no aim or clear thought of anything, except to assure myself that there was nothing in the room. All the time, you know, I, I never expected really to find anything. Only my uneasiness had to be assured. In the middle of my search, my mother woke up and, of course, I had to explain. I told her about her door opening and the knocks on the banister and that I had come up and found her asleep. I said nothing about the smell, which was not very distinct, but told her that the thing happening twice had made me a bit nervous and possibly fanciful, and I thought I would take a look round just to feel satisfied. 
I have thought since that the reason I made no mention of the smell was not only that I did not want to frighten my mother, for I was scarcely that myself, but because I had only a vague half-knowledge that I associated the smell with fancies too indefinite and peculiar to bear talking about. You will understand that I am able now to analyze and put the thing into words, but then I did not even know my chief reason for saying nothing, let alone appreciate its possible significance. <clears throat> it was my mother, after all, who put part of my vague sensations into words. "'What a disagreeable smell!' she exclaimed, and was silent a moment looking at me. Then, "'You feel there's something wrong?' still looking at me, very quietly, but with a little nervous note of questioning expectancy. "'I don't know,' I said. "'I can't understand it, unless you've really been walking about in your sleep.' "'The smell,' she said. "'Yes,' I replied. "'That's what puzzles me, too. "'I'll take a walk through the house, but I don't suppose it's anything.' I lit her candle, and taking the lamp, I went through the other bedrooms, and afterward all over the house, including the three underground cellars, which was a little trying to the nerves, seeing that I was more nervous than I would admit. Then I went back to my mother and told her there was really nothing to bother about, and, you know, in the end, we talked ourselves into believing it was nothing. My mother would not agree that she might have been sleepwalking, but she was ready to put the door opening down to the fault of the latch, which certainly snicked very lightly. As for the knocks, they might be the old warped woodwork of the house cracking a bit, or a mouse rattling a piece of loose plaster. The smell was more difficult to explain, but finally we agreed that it might easily be the queer night smell of the moist earth coming in through the open window of my mother's room from the back garden, or, for that matter, from the little churchyard beyond the big wall at the bottom of the garden. And so we quieted down, and finally I went to bed and to sleep. I think this is certainly a lesson on the way we humans can delude ourselves, for there was not one of these explanations that my reason could really accept. Try to imagine yourself in the same circumstances, and you will see how absurd our attempts to explain the happenings really were. In the morning, when I came down to breakfast, we talked it all over again, and whilst we agreed that it was strange, we also agreed that we had begun to imagine funny things in the backs of our minds, which now we felt half ashamed to admit. This is very strange when you come to look into it, but very human. And then that night, again, my mother's door was slammed once more just after midnight. I caught up the lamp, and when I reached her door, I found it shut. I opened it quickly and went in to find my mother lying with her eyes open and rather nervous, having been waked by the bang of the door. But what upset me more than anything was the fact that there was a disgusting smell in the passage and in her room. Whilst I was asking her whether she was all right, a door slammed twice downstairs, and you can imagine how it made me feel. My mother and I looked at one another, and then I lit her candle, and taking the poker from the fender, went downstairs with the lamp, beginning to feel really nervous. The cumulative effect of so many queer happenings was getting hold of me, and all the apparently reasonable explanations seemed futile. The horrible smell seemed to be very strong in the downstairs passage, also in the front room and the cellars, but chiefly in the passage. I made a very thorough search of the house, and when I had finished, I knew that all the lower windows and doors were properly shut and fastened, and that there was no living thing in the house beyond our two selves. Then I went up to my mother's room again, and we talked the thing over for an hour or more, and in the end came to the conclusion that we might, after all, be reading too much into a number of little things. But, you know, inside of us, 
we did not believe this. Later, when we had talked ourselves into a more comfortable state of mind, I said goodnight and went off to bed, and presently managed to get to sleep. In the early hours of the morning, whilst it was still dark, I was waked by a loud noise. I sat up in bed and listened, and from downstairs I heard bang, 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 one door after another being slammed. At least, that's the impression the sound gave me. I jumped out of bed with the tingle and shiver of sudden fright on me, and at the same moment as I lit my candle, my door was pushed slowly open. I had left it unlatched so as not to feel that my mother was quite shut off from me. "'Who's there?' I shouted out in a voice twice as deep as my natural one, and with a queer breathlessness that sudden fright so often gives one. "'Who's there?' Then I heard my mother saying, "'It's me, Thomas. Whatever is happening downstairs?' She was in the room by this, and I saw she had her bedroom poker in one hand and her candle in the other. I could have smiled at her had it not been for the extraordinary sounds downstairs. I got into my slippers and reached down an old sword bayonet from the wall. Then I picked up my candle and begged my mother not to come, but I knew it would be of little use if she had made up her mind. And she had, with the result that she acted as a sort of rear guard for me during our search. I know, in some ways... I was very glad to have her with me, as you will understand. By this time, the door slamming had ceased, and there seemed, probably because of the contrast, to be an appalling silence in the house. However, I led the way, holding my candle high and keeping the sword bayonet very handy. Downstairs, we found all the doors wide open, although the outer doors and windows were closed all right. I began to wonder whether the noises had been made by the doors after all. Of one thing only were we sure, and that was there was no living thing in the house beside ourselves, while everywhere throughout the house there was the taint of that disgusting odor. Of course, it was absurd to try to make believe any longer. There was something strange about the house, and as soon as it was daylight, I set my mother to packing, and soon after breakfast I saw her off by train. Then I set to work to try to clear up the mystery. I went first to the landlord and told him all the circumstances. From him, I found that twelve or fifteen years back, the house had got rather a curious name from three or four tenants, with the result that it had remained empty a long while. In the end, he had let it at a low rent to a Captain Tobias on the one condition that he should hold his tongue if he saw anything peculiar. The landlord's idea, as he told me frankly, was to free the house from these tales of something queer by keeping a tenant in it and then to sell it for the best price he could get. However, when Captain Tobias left, after a ten years' tenancy, there was no longer any talk about the house, so when I offered to take it on a five-years lease, he had jumped at the offer. This was the whole story, so he gave me to understand. When I pressed him for details of the supposed peculiar happenings in the house all those years back, he said the tenants had talked about a woman who always moved about the house at night. Some tenants never saw anything, but others would not stay out the first month's tenancy. One thing the landlord was particular to point out, that no tenant had ever complained about knockings or door slamming. As for the smell, he seemed positively indignant about it. But why, I don't suppose he knew himself, except that he probably had some vague feeling that it was an indirect accusation on my part that the drains were not right. In the end, I suggested that he should come down and spend the night with me. He agreed at once, especially as I told him I intended to keep the whole business quiet and try to get to the bottom of the curious affair, for he was anxious to keep the rumor of the haunting from getting about. About three o'clock that afternoon, he came down 
and we made a thorough search of the house, which, however, revealed nothing unusual. Afterward, the landlord made one or two tests, which showed him the drainage was in perfect order, and after that, we made our preparations for sitting up all night. First, we borrowed two policemen's dark lanterns from the station nearby, and where the superintendent and I were friendly, and as soon as it was really dusk, the landlord went up to his house for his gun. I had the sword bayonet I have told you about, and when the landlord got back, we sat talking in my study until nearly midnight. Then we lit the lanterns and went upstairs. We placed the lanterns, gun, and bayonet handy on the table. Then I shut and sealed the bedroom doors. Afterwards, we took our seats and turned off the lights. From then until two o'clock, nothing happened, but a little after two, as I found by holding my watch near the faint glow of the closed lanterns, I had a time of extraordinary nervousness, and I bent toward the landlord and whispered to him that I had a queer feeling something was about to happen and to be ready with his lantern. At the same time, I reached out toward mine. In the very instant I made this movement, the darkness which filled the passage seemed to become suddenly of a dull violet color, not as if a light had been shown, but as if the natural blackness of the night had changed color. And then, coming through this violet night, through this violet-colored gloom, came a little naked child running. In an extraordinary way, the child seemed not to be distinct from the surrounding gloom, but almost as if it were a concentration of that extraordinary atmosphere, as if that gloomy color which had changed the night came from the child. It seems impossible to make clear to you, but try to understand it. The child went past me, running, with the natural movement of the legs of a chubby human child, but in an absolute and inconceivable silence. It was a very small child and must have passed under the table, but I saw the child through the table as if it had been only a slightly darker shadow than the colored gloom. In the same instant, I saw that a fluctuating glimmer of violet light outlined the metal of the gun barrels and the blade of the sword bayonet, making them seem like faint shapes of glimmering light, floating unsupported where the tabletop should have shown solid. Now, curiously, as I saw these things, I was subconsciously aware that I heard the anxious breathing of the landlord, quite clear and labored, close to my elbow, where he waited nervously with his hands on the lantern. I realized in that moment that he saw nothing, but waited in the darkness for my warning to come true. Even as I took heed of these minor things, I saw the child jump to one side and hide behind some half-seen object that was certainly nothing belonging to the passage. I stared intently with a most extraordinary thrill of expectant wonder, with fright making goose flesh of my back, and even as I stared, I solved for myself the less important problem of what the two black clouds were that hung over a part of the table. I think it was very curious and interesting, the double working of the mind often so much more apparent during times of stress. The two clouds came from two faintly shining shapes, which I knew must be the metal of the lanterns, and the things that looked black to the sight with which I was then seeing could be nothing else but what to normal human sight is known as light. This phenomenon I have always remembered. I have twice seen a somewhat similar thing, in the dark light case and in that trouble of Matheson's, which you know about. Even as I understood this matter of the lights, I was looking to my left to understand why the child was hiding. And suddenly I heard the landlord shout out, The woman! But I saw nothing. I had a disagreeable sense that something repugnant was near to me, and I was aware in the same moment that the landlord was gripping my arm in a hard, frightened grip. 
Then I was looking back to where the child had hidden. I saw the child peeping out from behind its hiding place, seeming to be looking up at the passage, but whether in fear I could not tell. Then it came out and ran headlong away through the place where should have been the wall of my mother's bedroom, but the sense with which I was seeing these things showed me the wall only as a vague, upright shadow, unsubstantial, and immediately the child was lost to me in the dull violet gloom. At the same time, I felt the landlord press back against me as if something had passed close to him, and he called out again, a hoarse sort of cry, The woman! The woman! and turned the shade clumsily from off his lantern. But I had seen no woman, and the passage showed empty as he shone the beam of his light jerkily to and fro, but chiefly in the direction of the doorway of my mother's room. He was still clutching my arm and had risen to his feet, and now, mechanically and almost slowly, I picked up my lantern and turned on the light. I shone it, a little dazedly, at the seals upon the doors, but none were broken. Then I sent the light to and fro, up and down the passage, but there was nothing, and I turned to the landlord, who was saying something in a rather incoherent fashion. As my light passed over his face, I noted in a dull sort of way that he was drenched with sweat. Then my wits became more handleable, and I began to catch the drift of his words. Did you see her? Did you see her? He was saying over and over again, and then I found myself telling him in quite a level voice that I had not seen any woman. He became more coherent then, and I found that he had seen a woman come from the end of the passage and go past us, but he could not describe her except that she kept stopping and looking about her, and had even peered at the wall close beside him as if looking for something. But what seemed to trouble him most was that she had not seemed to see him at all. He repeated this so often that in the end I told him, in an absurd sort of way, that he ought to be very glad she had not. What did it all mean, was the question. Somehow I was not so frightened as utterly bewildered. I had seen less then than since, but what I had seen had made me feel drift from my anchorage of reason. What did it mean? He had seen a woman searching for something. I had not seen this woman. I had seen a child running away and hiding from something or someone. He had not seen the child or the other things, only the woman, and I had not seen her. What did it all mean? I had said nothing to the landlord about the child. I had been too bewildered, and I realized that it would be futile to attempt an explanation. He was already stupid with the thing he had seen and not the kind of man to understand. All this went through my mind as we stood there, shining the lanterns to and fro. All the time intermingled with a streak of practical reasoning, I was questioning myself. What did it all mean? What was the woman searching for? What was the child running from? Suddenly, as I stood there, bewildered and nervous, making random answers to the landlord, a door below was violently slammed, and directly I caught the horrible reek of which I have told you. There, I said to the landlord, and caught his arm in my turn. The smell! Do you smell it? He looked at me so stupidly that in a sort of nervous anger I shook him. Yes, he said in a queer voice, trying to shine the light from his shaking lantern at the stairhead. Come on! I said, and picked up my bayonet, and he came, carrying his gun awkwardly. I think he came more because he was afraid to be left alone than because he had any pluck left, poor beggar. I never sneer that kind of funk, or at least very seldom, for when it takes hold of you, it makes rags of your courage. I led the way downstairs, shining my light into the lower passage, 
and afterward at the doors to see whether they were shut, for I had closed and latched them, placing a corner of a mat against each door so I should know which had been opened. I saw at once that none of the doors had been opened. Then I threw the beam of my light down alongside the stairway in order to see the mat I had placed against the door at the top of the cellar's stairs. I got a horrid thrill, for the mat was flat. I paused a couple of seconds, shining my light to and fro in the passage, and holding fast to my courage, I went down the stairs. As I came to the bottom step, I saw patches of wet all up and down the passage. I shone my lantern on them. It was the imprint of a wet foot on the oilcloth of the passage. Not an ordinary footprint, but a queer, soft, flabby, spreading imprint that gave me a feeling of extraordinary horror. Backward and forward, I flashed the light over the impossible marks and saw them everywhere. Suddenly, I noticed that they led to each of the closed doors. I felt something touch my back and glanced around swiftly to find the landlord had come close to me, almost pressing against me in his fear. It's all right, I said, but in a rather breathless whisper, meaning to put a little courage into him, for I could feel that he was shaking through all his body. Even then, as I tried to get him steadied enough to be of some use, his gun went off with a tremendous bang. He jumped and yelled with sheer terror, and I swore because of the shock. Give it to me, for God's sake, I said, and slipped the gun from his hand, and in the same instant there was a sound of running steps up the garden path and immediately the flash of a bullseye lantern upon the fanlight over the front door. Then the door was tried, and directly afterward there came a thunderous knocking, which told me a policeman had heard the shot. I went to the door and opened it. Fortunately, the constable knew me, and when I had beckoned him in, I was able to explain matters in a very short time. While doing this, Inspector Johnston came up the path, having missed the officer, and seeing lights in the open door. I told him as briefly as possible what had occurred and did not mention the child or the woman, for it would have seemed too fantastic for him to notice. I showed him the queer, wet footprints and how they went toward the closed doors. I explained quickly about the mats and how that the one against the cellar door was flat, which showed the door had been opened. The inspector nodded and told the constable to guard the door at the top of the cellar stairs. He then asked the hall lamp to be lit, after which he took the policeman's lantern and led the way into the front room. He paused with the door wide open and threw the light all round. Then he jumped into the room and looked behind the door. There was no one there, but all over the polished oak floor, between the scattered rugs, went the marks of those horrible spreading footprints, and the room permeated with the horrible odor. The inspector searched the room carefully and then went into the middle room using the same precautions. There was nothing in the middle room or in the kitchen or pantry, but everywhere went the wet footmarks through all the rooms, showing plainly wherever there were woodwork or oilcloth, and always there was the smell. And that is the end of part one. As mentioned at the top of the show, Patreon! Feel free to support the show. Every dollar goes back into the show and is used to pay for things like hosting fees, guest readers, and the live-in veterinarian my wife and I hired to take care of our hyacinth macaw, Budavere, and his serval cat companion, Lancelump. Normally, they'd try to kill each other, but we got them as kitten and egg, respectively, so they're just like siblings. Weird siblings with cross traits, but we love them both. Thank you to Eric Braun, Michaela, and Sarah Sims for your support. I really appreciate it. Please go and get vaccinated for anything and everything you are eligible for. 
help protect yourself, your family, and society. If you see a racist out and about doing a racism, go ahead and make their life just as deeply uncomfortable as possible. And always remember that a failure doesn't mean you failed. It means you learned what doesn't work. Learn from that and try again. Stand up and rise a better person. The most important step a person can take is always the next one. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week. Actually, doink, a lie. I'll see you tomorrow at noon for Frankenstein Letters 3 and 4 in which not our hero meets our hero. Bye till then. If this is your first show... First show? That's not what that's supposed to be. Hi, is this the first show you've ever listened to ever? I don't know, maybe for someone it is. Could be, I don't know. Had lived in that little house for two years, and in the whole of that time, there had not been a single... Jeez, Louise. My God, five minutes in, and I've got about two minutes of actual recording done, because I just, I'm so gassy right now. And his serval cat companion, Lancelump. Normally, they'd try to kill each other, but we got them as kitten and egg, respectively, so they're just like siblings. That, respectively, makes no sense there, because it's not respective. And now I'm kind of tempted to leave it in to see if anybody catches it. I'm going to do that. I'm going to put this in the blooper reel so that you can listen back and go like, oh, you're right.